Welcome to episode 248 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In late 2023, China's BYD overtook Tesla as the leading electric vehicle manufacturer in the world. This focused global attention on China's remarkable emergence as a clean energy manufacturing powerhouse. Earlier this week, rumors surfaced that Japan's Honda is considering Canada for an $18 billion EV manufacturing plant. Now, that got me thinking about whether or not Canada's auto sector can pivot from building internal combustion engine cars to EVs. So to discuss that question, I'm joined by Joanna Kiriasis, the EV analyst for Clean Energy Canada, someone I've interviewed many times, but this will be your first time on Energy Talks. So welcome to the interview, Joanna. Thanks for having me, Marka. Well, it's good to see you. Happy New Year and, you know, all of that nonsense. Um, This fascinates me because the, you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, China had kind of a nascent, you know, internal combustion into gas, diesel power, you know, auto manufacturing center. And they made cars and they made trucks and they made, you know, buses and all, all of that kind of stuff. But they knew that they were never going to catch the Americans, the Japanese, the Koreans, and the and the Europeans. And so they made a decision, uh, the government made a decision. They said, look, we're going to invest in the next generation of auto technology, in, in electric transportation. And they poured, I mean, they had very aggressive industrial policies. They poured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars into this industry because, of course, it's not just the the, the auto plants. You've got you know, battery manufacturing and, and all of those supply chains for, for EVs. And they've kind of, it feels like they've come out of nowhere, but in fact, they've been building for a long time. This is the culmination of a very deliberate strategy uh, on behalf of, of industry, but particularly government. And I'm just wondering, because you are tapped into Canadian movers and shakers in the auto sector. You talk to policymakers, you talk to, you know, companies and parts, trade associations, the all of that stuff. What's what's their perception of of China and where it's going with its EV manufacturing industry? Well, I certainly think that Canadian auto uh, industry players are sounding the alarm bells right now, concerned that if if Canada's push to transition to electric vehicles happens too quickly, then the Canadian auto sector is is going to um, you know get hurt, and instead the Chinese EV sector is is going to benefit. But I I don't agree with that. Um, you know. Thanks to the muscular efforts from uh, Canadian and American governments over the last few years, we have just seen tens of billions of dollars of of new EV and battery-related investments flowing into North America. We are seeing North America now surpass the EU in terms of what our battery manufacturing capacity is going to be by 2030. There's a long list of car makers that either already build EVs and batteries in North America or will soon build them, whether it's Ford, GM, Honda, Toyota, 
Nokia, Nissan, and Canada specifically is using this opportunity to, um, you know, come out of a place where our auto sector was declining and now get a second life in the future of the auto sector and, and do better than we were before. We are attracting new entrants like Volkswagen um, and North Volts, right? We uh, are not only securing uh, our, our um, the automakers that already had an existing footprint, but we're, they're potentially building on that, those footprints like this Honda uh, inv investment that's being rumored. So this is a real uh, opportunity for the Canadian auto sector. And I don't think that Chinese EVs are going to come in and take over anytime soon. It's an interesting response because the Canadian companies or the you know the Canadian industry uh, is not alone. The U.S. industry is kind of making the the same kind of argument, and it seems to me that it's a typical uh, incumbent disrupt disrupted incumbent argument. The, the the incumbent's dilemma, and only not as bad as oil and gas. Oil and gas has got a real problem because it has nothing to pivot to. Uh, whereas at least the automakers can say, you know, okay, well, uh, we have a competitor in in China, but hey, we're pivoting to electric vehicles anyway. Um, what do we have to do to compete better? And and I find this this the, the, you know the, their imp, their impulse, their instinct is to immediately go, oh my god, oh my god, protect us from competition. We you know we're we're worried that we're going to be overrun. Come on, you guys, you've been doing this for 120 years. You know how to build autos. Go do it better. If you need you if you need additional public policy support, okay, make the argument for it. Let's hear it. But this, you know, we're, North America is accustomed, and particularly the Americans, the Americans are accustomed to being number one in this kind of stuff. And and why we're why we're being cowed? Like, and we, and we need some kind of special protection. Amazing. I'm really kind of surprised and disappointed in some ways in the Canadian and American uh, auto sectors response to Chinese competition. Absolutely. I think I think you're right. You know, in the 1980s, we welcomed in South Korean car makers, Japanese car makers, and that lit a fire under North American car makers uh, to to up their game. And, and they did. And and I think they will again. Right. And they have uh, U.S. and Canadian government, again, billions and billions of dollars in manufacturing supports to help them get there, right? Our our governments and our um, consumers are invested in having a strong domestic EV sector. I also keep thinking about this from the perspective of the consumer, okay? And so um, some, some Canadians are certainly going to want to prioritize making sure they have a, a made-in-Canada EV. Other Canadians might want the, you know, the most affordable EV that they can get their hands on. And if we all of a sudden have a few options from China, um, like like BYD or SAIC, then Canadians are going to have access to some more affordable electric vehicles as well. And at a time when, you know, affordability and cost of living is really top of mind, then it would be nice to, to access one of those $12,000 BYD vehicles um, that's currently being sold in China. I have a little story that kind of illustrates. I'm old enough to remember uh, back in 1975, I was 16 years old and I'm living in, in Manitoba and I was in Winnipeg and a friend of my my father's, they had a, a pretty new 
Toyota Corona and never driven one. Now, my dad was a mechanic, so I kind of grew up with, you know, North American cars. He was a Chevy guy. And so I was a Chevy guy. And this this was a big deal back then. You know, you had to pick a brand and be be loyal. And so um, I was going someplace and, and this family very generously said, well, why don't you borrow our, our Corona for the evening? Never been in, in a, a Japanese car before. Got in, it was like going from a sundial to a Swiss watch. It was amazing. Because, I mean, the doors shut and it was like, you know, it was, it was like shutting a fridge. It was like a vacuum. The, the, the drivetrain, the engine ran like a jewel. I mean, it was just, a, it was amazing. And, and in fact, I have to say, it converted me over to Japanese cars. I've driven many Toyotas and Hondas uh, since then, and currently a, a Toyota and a Nissan, an Infiniti. So the, and I remember at the time, oh, Jap scrap, you know, there were all sorts of derogative terms. And, but it shone a light on the shoddy quality of the late 70s and up into well into the 80s of North American cars. They were awful. And they had to up their game, and it took them a long time. I mean, they didn't recover really their, the quality. They weren't competitive in quality with Japanese and then and, and other car uh, foreign cars for a long, long time. But they did get there. And it seems to me that that, that kind of competition is, is ultimately better for everybody concerned as opposed and I here I am I'm making the you know the the free market competition argument that you would think that the big companies you know that we're talking about would uh, they're always talking a good game uh, and you think that they would embrace this absolutely competition is healthy and I think at the end of the day um the goal here is is to you know accelerate the energy transition cut emissions in our transportation sector, help Canadians save money. And the new EV availability standard that came out just before the holidays, that is really helping to uh, accomplish those goals, right? By maximizing the electric vehicle options that Canadians are going to have available to them by requiring car makers to bring more EVs into the Canadian market, regardless of where they come from. And, uh, you know, three quarters of the cars that we drive today aren't made in Canada, right? They're imported from Germany or Japan or South Korea, as you're saying. And these are cars that Canadians love. So if we add BYD to that list in the near future, you know, like, let's let Canadians decide if, if that's something that they want to buy. And if it's a better car than what North American car makers are offering, then it just might be uh, what Canadians choose. The reason I, I, I wanted to interview you is to talk about the emerging Canadian electric vehicle industrial cluster, because it's not just cars or, you know, electric trucks. It's also buses and garbage trucks and delivery vans and maybe eventually class eight semi trucks for hauling long haul freight. And Canada has got this nascent kind of industrial cluster. It's, you know, we've got now a couple of battery plants that have been built and a couple more. You mentioned, you know, the Volkswagen and uh, and Stellantis wants to, to, to build a, a plant. Both of those will get federal funding. Uh, Lion Electric, bus manufacturer out of Quebec that's doing very well, uh, is building or maybe has already completed uh, a battery plant. Um, and we've seen a couple, you know, we've seen some announcements about the uh, exist, yeah, so OEMs that are pivoting, that are building 
uh, EV plants or converting EV plants to, to manufacture EVs. Now we're talking about critical mineral strategies, you know, because Canada's got a lot of mining and, and then that, that will inevitably raise the question of where we're going to refine it and process it into battery metals, right? Don't point sh shipping it over to China and then shipping it back. You need to do it in North America. And then on top of that, the U.S. Is, has passed the 300 and, well, we'll call it $500 billion Inf Inflation Reduction Act, which is not what it's by domestic, but by the, what they mean by that is also countries with which the U.S. has free trade agreements, which is Canada. So it looks like we're you know this this uh, rumored announcement by by Honda Honda, it looks like you know we're starting to get some traction and some acceleration in this EV industrial cluster. Well, am I am I is that accurate from your point of view? Yes. I mean, I think what this, what Honda's interest in Canada for another battery plant, and, or sorry, another uh, EV related plant and an $18 billion one at that, right? <laughs> to date, I think the largest uh, investment announced has been the $7 billion Volkswagen battery plant. And this is over twice the size of that investment. I, I think it really shows that Canada is doing an excellent job capitalizing on its EV battery supply chain potential. We are ranked second in the entire world for our battery supply chain potential. And over the last few years, we have um, articulated exactly what Canada can offer, what our competitive advantages are, critical minerals, proximity to the U.S., uh, you know, associated with that, uh, related to that is uh, being sort of included in some of its uh, domestic content requirements, as you mentioned. So we're sort of uh, getting a lot of spillover benefits from from the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, um, skilled workforce, uh, and clean electricity. I was just going to say, major advantage for clean energy manufacturers is access to reliable, affordable, zero emission or close to it electricity. Many of these companies have public goals to be carbon neutral by a certain date. General Motors does. Uh, Volkswagen does. Honda wants to be carbon neutral by 2050. How how do you ensure your supply chains are zero emission? You've got to plug into clean electricity, right? And that's exactly what Ontario and Quebec can offer. Um, and what many, as of now, southern U.S. states especially aren't quite ready to, to offer. So certainly that's given Canada some leverage and I've tracked every single announcement that has been made in association with these battery related investments and everyone mentions clean electricity being uh, a draw for the company. Yeah, you know, we don't, there's so much complaining, complaining in Canada about carbon pricing that we forget that, you know, the Europe, Europe just, uh, the EU passed a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So now that's specifically designed to decarbonize supply chains. And the, even the Americans, they will never bring in a carbon tax, at least not at the federal level. But three Republican senators are sponsoring a, 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 a Greenhouse Gas Pollution Act because they know that the competitiveness of their industry has, it will be determined to some extent by its carbon intensity. And you have to squeeze the emissions out of your supply chain. And I'm sure that their, 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 their OEMs, their big manufacturers and the supply chain trade associations are telling them that. And I'm sure that's the same in Canada. I would, I would assume so. 
yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think clean electricity, yeah, that's or carbon pricing and clean electricity. When I'm thinking about the future of Canada's federal government and uh, a potential polyev government, uh, it hasn't been as clear that 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 potential future government would uh, continue to pursue policies and programs that move us towards 100% clean electricity. And it is unclear whether uh, the industrial carbon price would have a future under that government. And, you know, we think that's a huge mistake. It, it, it not only uh, is industry, you know, accustomed to already complying and figuring out um, its competitive advantage, but it helps us to maintain preferential access to these global markets that are increasingly closing their borders to high carbon goods. So um, hopefully, hopefully politicians of all stripes uh, understand that competitive advantage and, and work to preserve it in the future. It'll be very interesting to see uh, how carbon pricing in North America, well, in Canada particularly, uh, how that affects the Chinese distributor uh, manufacturers if they decide to, to to move here. So BYD, I mean, we all know 71% of, of China's uh, power grid is powered by by coal, right? So their electricity is has a very high emissions intensity, carbon intensity, that then uh, gets counted in the in, in carbon intensity of their products, like electric vehicles. And how will our industrial emitter tax maybe give the domestic, uh, like Canadian-made uh, EVs, uh, a, a leg up? Well, I think we would need further policies in place to create that preference. So either we would need a border carbon adjustment, which this federal government has talked about for a while but hasn't really moved forward with or we would need um you know procurement policies or our ev rebate to prefer kind of lower carbon vehicles and and you know whenever we're thinking about what a bi canadian policy could look like uh by bi canadian policies are largely not compliant with trade law so, you know, we never recommend that Canada move forward with them. Uh, but a buy clean policy, for instance, an EV rebate that gives more money to um, EVs that have lower life cycle emissions because they are manufactured on cleaner grids, that's a way that you could give uh, made in Canada EVs uh, preferential treatment and also a way that you could try to encourage China to reduce the carbon footprint of its vehicles without violating trade law. So, you know, that's something that politicians could think about in the future. Definitely adds administrative complexity to uh, to a rebate system, but um, it, it could have positive outcomes. Sure, but uh, but I think that's actually a, a very fair way of, of uh, uh, advantaging or incentivizing the Canadian manufacturers and their and their suppliers uh, to decarbonize. If they see a clear competitive advantage in in have using uh, you know clean electricity uh, because it gives them a leg up on on the Chinese manufacturers and as well they should and and probably I you know we all know that the the China uh, China is negotiating with the EU right now uh, on the, the potential tariffs for Chinese uh, EVs into the European markets and and. One of the big issues is the carbon border adjustment mechanism, and I would imagine that China is probably now 
you know, rethinking some of this uh, because they can see that it's going to put their their manufacturers at a, a competitive disadvantage. Um, so anyway, the, the those is kind of that's kind of the federal landscape when it comes to uh, for policies to support the growth of an EV industrial cluster. But I'm fascinated by how the Ontario government, which is the home of almost all of the uh, the Canadian auto sector, both the OEMs that manufacture here and the 700 companies that supply parts to those OEMs, the, pro- the, the Ford government has absolutely skated. It's provided some money. You know, it's, it's kind of piggybacked on the feds to, for the battery plants and so on. It doesn't have, a, it doesn't have an EV uh, uh, rebate or uh, financial incentive. It doesn't have much in the way of, of climate policy. It, I mean, it, it's, ba- it's basically, it's, you know, the, the, the Ford government is, is just free riding on, on what the federal government and other governments are doing. I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, I think that the Ford government has uh, pivoted a little bit or has warmed to electric vehicles in, in some respects, but not others. Certainly, we've not been able to get them to move on the consumer side to help Ontarians drive electric vehicles by reintroducing rebates or tax credits. They did recently roll out a a small EV charging infrastructure program, $90 million, that's specifically focused on building the charging network in small and medium-sized communities. So while, you know, the City of Toronto was probably not pleased with that, it, it is complementing sort of the federal program by by reaching out to those more uh, rural communities. On the manufacturing side, uh, the Ford government seems pretty excited about making Ontario an EV manufacturing hub. They have put up some uh, support, you know, whether they initiated uh, those conversations with those auto companies. I think at the start, they were sort of um, tagging along with, with the federal efforts, but Eventually, I think they uh, got onto it, and I'm seeing, you know, Victor Fideli and and a number of other political leaders in Ontario similarly out there, you know, uh, uh, going abroad, shopping Ontario's uh, competitive EV advantages around the world, and um, getting Canada and Ontario on global countries and carmakers' radars. They're also trying to unlock some of the critical mineral strengths in Ontario, which is more tricky, um, especially in the ring of fire. And so we'll have to see, you know, what critical mineral projects actually come to fruition, where real uh, genuine partnerships with Indigenous communities are actually uh, facilitated. And um, yeah, but... And then I think we also have to see what happens with the auto part sector, because as you mentioned, that's that's one of the largest parts of Canada's auto sector, where a lot of the companies and jobs are, and it's still unclear, you know, which jobs and part companies are still going to be around, which will successfully pivot to the to the EV future and, and which won't. So uh, lots of exciting things to watch in Ontario. There is, and uh, it's unfortunate that Ontario hasn't embraced this, uh, uh, you know, more uh, fulsomely than it than it has. But the two provinces that have, and for, for non-Canadian listeners, and we do have actually quite a few of them, uh, there are 10 provinces in Canada. Four of them are large. 
So Ontario is the biggest population, 15, 17 million, and you've got Quebec, which is seven or eight million, and and BC, it's on the west coast, it's five million, and and Alberta, that's uh, home of oil and gas in Canada, sort of our Texas, which that's got four and a half, approaching five million. Those are the four big the big provinces. So Ontario was kind of dragging its feet, being you know pulled along reluctantly into the EV industrial landscape. Um, Alberta wants nothing to do with it. They they are com- continually fighting with the federal government over every little every sparrow that falls is the prime minister's fault, you know. And there's so big fights all the time. BC is embracing it, but they don't have much of an EV infrastructure. They've got a little they've got a little battery plant that they're going to make, and they've got some research going on, and and they've got some smaller companies, but it it's not going to emerge. It's not like Tesla, you know, the Canadian Tesla is incubating. In, in British Columbia, it'll be very specialized. They have other kinds of stuff like hydrogen, that is their big uh, big focus. Quebec, now on the other hand, that is they've got it. They figured out that this is a, a an industrial opportunity that will only come along once every hundred years. They've got oodles of clean electricity because of their tremendous hydro capacity and and more yet to come. And 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 they're going for it uh, with gusto. So give us a little overview of what's going on in Quebec, if you don't mind. Quebec is absolutely exciting and leading on the battery front in, in Canada, if you ask me. They have been very deliberate in building up this industry. They've got a battery strategy. They've got a critical mineral strategy. They know exactly what they're good at and what they want to capture. And then also what they don't, what they think, you know, Ontario is better suited to do. So they've got uh, lithium reserves and are finally getting some lithium projects up off the ground. They um, have landed a number of cathode active material plants, which is a key component that goes into batteries and a very high value component. So a number of uh, big name projects like GM and POSCO, as well as BASF, have invested in Quebec. They... um, They've also landed the battery manufacturing. And and if you look at uh, Quebec's battery strategy, I'm quite sure they felt that battery cells were maybe something that Ontario was going to steal because battery cells are often produced very close to where final vehicles are assembled. So Quebec, uh, yeah, I, I, I could be wrong there, but uh, I know in conversations with folks from Quebec, that was sort of the, the idea was we'll take the upstream and battery cells and Ontario can sort of take the downstream. Um, but Quebec's outcompeting Ontario on on uh, landing certain battery plants like the Northvolt plant. And uh, then last, Quebec also has specialty vehicles that it produces, whether it's electric buses, you mentioned Line Electric, there's also uh, Novabus, um, or electric snowmobiles and, uh, and jet skis. I think the company's called Tega that builds those. So um, they they have some some vehicle assembly as well, but just not you know passenger vehicle assembly. Uh, and maybe the last thing I'll say is they have created an industrial park that brings all of these projects together and is, is strategically placed along you know a logistics route um, to make it easy for materials to be coming in and out. And it's called the the Bicamcore Industrial Park, and it's just uh, it it. it this huge success story where a small town has been turned into, you know, one of the most exciting economic hubs of the next century. 
that is exciting because that, that's the first time I've heard of that. And I'm going to have to do a little more um, uh, work on that idea because it's consistent with the, what other governments are doing. This is, I, you know, I hear this tired old trope. Well, you know, we've got to keep government out of it. It's all the private sector. And then that and this, you know, Joanna, this is your first time on, on Energy Talks. But my poor listeners hear me uh, ramble on about Mariana Mozzicato all the time about how she says, do not listen to what the Americans say. Look at what they do and what the Americans are doing, which you see with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, is they pour tons of money, enormous amounts of money into science and research and development and de-risking new technologies till the private sector can get up, you know, to sort of commercialize them. And this is exactly the principle that un is undergirds China's industrial policy, Europe's industrial policy, Korea's industrial policy, all of them. And now the Americans uh, have put their own wrinkle on it with their series of acts, including the CHIPS Act and the Infrastructure Act. And why wouldn't Canada do exactly the same thing? And why wouldn't Quebec do that same thing at the provincial level? And so they are. And the good on them. I mean, they're picking these, the window of opportunity for these investments is open now and it will not be open forever because eventually those uh, supply chains are going to harden at the global level and they'll be very difficult to break into. That's it. Canada did not have any other choice. I, I often get asked, are these subsidies worth it? It's a lot of money. And especially when you're trying to transition an entire industry from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles, and especially when every other major country that you're competing with is taking an incredibly, uh, you know, government-involved approach to industrial policy, Canada had to do it. They had to follow suit. We, we have to put up the same kind of massive subsidies and do the same level of intervention or else we would stand no chance. And as you said, this is a small window of time. We either get on board or I miss the train and... Canada has gotten on board in a much bigger way than I think most people expected when it comes to EVs and batteries. I have to say, I've had this discussion with some economists, uh, professors of economics, uh, who shall remain anonymous to protect the guilty, um, uh, who took a very classical economics thing. Well, there's no, there's no market failure here. There's no reason for us to give $10 billion or whatever we gave Volkswagen to set up their, their plant. And my response to them is, dude, you can either, you have two choices here. You can build it, which means you do all the science and the R&D and you build it from the ground up like the Chinese have done and, and, uh, and, and other, uh, you know, the Korean uh, battery industry has done and so on. You, could, you can do that. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot of hard work. But if you choose not to do it, as Canada did, then your only other alternative is to buy it. And it costs you money. And that's just this. So either build it or buy it or just completely miss out on the, the next industrial revolution, which, you know, would be an absolute crime if we did that. I mean, that would be that would be um, as a speaking as a historian, we have missed other industrial revolutions, you know, like the 1920s, it, you know, man, uh, some of the the auto manufacturing and and other in like tractors and combines and stuff that went, you know, that all went down to the States. But I digress. The point being here is is build it or buy it and and uh, just ignoring it uh, should never be an option. 
Yeah, we can't rest on our laurels. Canada has a lot to offer global companies and investors. Um, but at this juncture, when uh, when the entire industry is just going into such a transition, and again, it's along the it's it's along the whole battery supply chain from critical minerals to auto assembly um, and to the end of life. Each of those sectors needs to transition, and and it takes a heavier lift. Uh, to do that, which involves some government support. You and I have had interviews about this in the past, and you've been very clear that Canada should be strategic, where we're simply not a big enough auto sector, nor are we a big enough economy that we can uh, hope to develop uh, industry in all all parts of the supply chain, and all the, the different parts of the of the transportation sector, because you know there are a lot of pieces of the transportation uh, uh, industry that are going to be electrified. So, from your point of view now, uh, where we sit in in early 2024, which parts of that electric vehicle sector should we be concentrating on, and are we doing a good job strategically? So to be honest, I previously thought that Canada should not try to compete on battery cells and EV assembly because I thought that the U.S. would eat our lunch. And so instead, me and 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 my perspective was very much informed from industry who who are actually on the ground and know you know what our uh, country's strengths are and what their companies are thinking. Uh, I previously thought that Canada should focus more on upstream from critical minerals, but specifically in the midstream section of uh, critical mineral refining, processing and refining, as well as um, battery material production. Fast forward a, a year, a year and a half, and we are punching so far above our weight when it comes to battery cell manufacturing and EV assembly. Again, going back to where we started, including the fact that Honda which just announced a new investment a year or two ago to retool its current plant in Alliston to make hybrid vehicles, is now looking at yet another plant um, that could be making uh, pure EVs and potentially their batteries as well. So with that with that change in the game here, uh, it turns out that Canada is, is really rocking the downstream portion of the supply chain. Now, I don't think that means we should give up on the midstream and upstream, and in particular... Uh, not only for Canada's economic uh, sake, but also for the global EV transition sake, I think we've got to get going on critical minerals and critical mineral refining because it's not battery cell manufacturing that's going to be the bottleneck in in meeting future EV demand. It's critical minerals uh, and uh, battery materials. And with the U.S. placing so many conditions on what sorts of vehicles and and which countries critical minerals are allowed to come from uh, to feed into their EV uh, market, um, then Canada's got to step up and and fill an outsized role, I think, in that upstream portion of uh, not only North America's supply chain, but, but also the global supply chain. Now, when we talk about EV manufacturing, we immediately go to, we think of cars. You know, like a Tesla Model S or the Model Three, uh, or uh, well, God help us, the Cybertruck. No, 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 no. Well, the Ford F one fifty Lightning. Maybe that's what we think of. But there's so much else uh, up for grabs here. 
And uh, one of them is an area that, that Canada's already carved out some space in, and we've mentioned this. But we have Lion Electric in Quebec, and we have uh, New Flyer in Winnipeg. And I think that demonstrates, New Flyer in particular, uh, demonstrates that you don't have to be in the industrial heartland to take advantage of this. You know, so the, the, the way things work now, um, if you're smart and you run a good company and you're clever and, and, and innovative, you know, you can make a, a, a Manitoba-based uh, EV manufacturer work. I have to say, I live on Vancouver Island, which is the last place that you would build, we'd put an EV plant, right? Well, maybe Baffin Island or, you know, Tuck the Yuck or something up in the Arctic. But really, I mean, Vancouver Island, you're going to get it here by a ferry for crying out loud. And we have in Parksville a little, a small electric vehicle uh, manufacturer. They make these, uh, you see them in uh, at airports all the time out on the tarmac. They're little tiny trucks that haul stuff around, you know, whatever, whether it be the fuel station or whatever it is. And they and they make them here. Apparently they're doing quite a, you know, they've been here for a while and, and they do quite a good job. So if you can make something in Manitoba, if you can manufacture buses in Manitoba, you can manufacture these little tiny trucks on Vancouver Island. You can pretty much, my my, what takeaway is that you can manufacture this stuff anywhere if you're smart and you and you you know put enough effort into it. So it seems to me that all you know, buses, garbage trucks, delivery vans, uh, specialty trucks, specialty vehicles for like northern climate. Right, which we're which getting enough cold weather here. We we, sh I mean, there's just so many opportunities. Are we, you know, because you're talking to these people all the time, are we considering these other niche markets? I think the starting point was an assumption that Canada was doing well in these niche markets and should actually only focus on them, and again leave passenger vehicles to the U.S. That didn't happen. Um, but but now we're in the next wave of electrification and zero emission buses and vans and trucks are are up. And there is a huge market opportunity. Um, multiple U.S. states have already signed on to 100% zero emission bus and truck uh, sales mandate. The Biden administration is doling out, again, billions of dollars for electric school buses and um, and other commercial vehicle programs. Uh, Canada is right now working on a zero emission uh, medium and heavy duty vehicle sales mandate that's going to move uh, our country towards higher percentages of uh, of those vehicles. But the manufacturing landscape right now in North America is fairly limited. There is a lot of opportunity for new entrants or for existing OEMs to expand their operations similar to how GM expanded into uh, producing its bright drop uh, electric delivery vans and its Ontario um, cami plant. And so I think uh, this this year is really going to be a year where the focus turns to zero emission buses and trucks in North America. Uh, and I think it'll be really exciting to, to look at what opportunities for manufacturers and fleets are on the horizon. The, uh, I made a mistake. Uh, I forgot to mention uh, that the Green Power Motors is is located in Vancouver, and they make man they manufacture school buses and other uh, electric vehicle, uh, medium duty uh, electric vehicles that they sell in the U.S. And in fact, I think they've got a, they're just either building or just completed a, a plant in Arizona. So there's another example. 
here's one of the, the, the opportunities I think here that uh, we don't talk a lot about, and I'd be curious to know what you think, and that is many of the uh, the OEMs have developed their own chassis, you know, the roller skate that's got the, it's an, it's an all-purpose uh, EV chassis. It's got the battery built in and all of the power electronics that you need. And I think of the uh, GM's Ultium platform, you know, something like that. They will sell you an Ultium platform if you want to build a specialty vehicle. So really, at that point, you know, you you could set up specialty plants to build, I don't know, a, a, you know, I see plumbers running around with specialty trucks. They've got, you know, they've got, it's all set up for plumbers or electricians or whatever trade you're, you happen to be in. And, and it seems like there are just oodles of opportunities like that. And I'm just wondering if, if that part of the uh, industry is beginning to take root in Canada. I'm not sure. I've heard of some stories about electric forklifts, for instance, and, uh, and other specialty, specialty vehicles, but uh, often it's, it's the larger fleets and the larger manufacturers that are sort of making moves first. Um, and so, you know, we're watching the Ikeas and the Purolators and the Staples to see what they're doing um, or uh, transit fleets to see what they're doing. Um, but, but, uh, I think you're right. There's a lot of opportunity to fill in and start producing electrified, especially specialty vehicles. Uh, but I don't have any examples off of, uh, the top of my head right now. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. And, um, uh, we'll close out the interview with the observation that the, one of the, I think, um, hallmarks of the global EV industry is the amount of innovation that's taking place in a short period of time. Um, I interview a lot of battery experts, and we talk about you know what's going on in China. We talk about what's going on in the EU. And there is no doubt that over the next, you know, we're in 2024 now, but 2025, 26, 27, we're going to start th seeing things like you know, semi-solid state batteries. We're going to see sodium ion, uh, lithium ion phosphate is already, you know, really popular in the in the uh, transportation EV sector. Uh, sorry, in the EV sector. It would be redundant. Anyway, the so when things are in flux like that and it's innovation that becomes, gives you a competitive advantage, it seems to me that Canada... Well, which way could it be? Could that be a, a competitive advantage for Canada? Our innovation ecosystem can support enough innovation that we can stay ahead of things, or we can import enough innovation, you know, with with the OEMs and other companies that we talked about today, or are we disadvantaged in a highly competitive landscape? I think Canada's innovation ecosystem is is a very strong potential advantage or competitive advantage i don't know if it's getting properly harnessed and so you know right now canada's approach to building uh, a canadian ev industry is to go out and seek foreign direct investment land some of these big deals by these um, large multinational companies i don't know if we have done enough to structure those deals in a way that benefits uh, emerging Canadian EV and battery leaders like 
you know, companies like Nano One or E3 Metals um, that have a lot of potential um, and, and incredible technologies to offer, but need some partnerships uh, and some government support to really be able to scale up. And uh, I think it's possible that they're sort of getting neglected uh, and, and not prioritized by the government. So I'd really say if we were to put together a battery, an EV battery strategy 2.0, that's got to be a top priority in that uh, next phase of Canada's battery plans, as should be um, workforce development to make sure we've got workers with the right skills in the right places. And... Uh, and, and then a greater focus on critical minerals and accelerating those pro projects. I know, I know there's a lot of work and thinking that's being done around how do we expedite uh, permitting and other processes while also ensuring high standards of, of ESG and Indigenous consultation and involvement. Um, but not sure we've landed on an approach there and the clock is ticking. Uh, one of the criticisms I've heard of Canadian industrial policy around electric vehicles and clean energy technology in general is that we can you can illustrate it by comparing it to what the the Americans are doing. So, in Canada, we have some funds, the Clean Growth Fund, uh, and you know they're big pots of money, and they basically uh, sit around the you know the the people who administer them w sit sit in their office and wait for proposals to land on their desk. Now contrast that with the Department of Energy which when it put a bunch of money in through the IRA into its loans program, went out and and uh, recruited one of my favorite people uh, who I'm act listeners. I'm actively trying to get Jigger Shaw on this podcast interview. We're, I'm a big fan of his too. Exactly. We are. We, we did an interview with uh, Jennifer Downing from the DOE here a couple of weeks ago. And, and I said to, and then, so the, their media people were saying, well, you know, we could do some more interviews. This is great. We really enjoyed that. And I said, okay, but the price is I got to get Jigger on my, on the, on the energy talks. Oh, okay. Well, he's busy guy. We'll talk. We'll, so we're in negotiations. We'll put it. But my point here is Jigger Shaw is like a one man, uh, uh, what would you call it? He goes out and he does things very strategically. When he decided, when the, the department of energy decided that, that virtual power plants were a great way to integrate renewables into the creaky old U.S. power grid, Jigger Shaw made that his mission in life. And he talks about it all the time and he promotes it all over the place and they, they build relationships at the DOE. And he does with the, the players, you know, the, 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 the startups and the medium, uh, the, the, the companies that are getting ready to scale up. And it's like he mentors them. And you just don't see that kind of leadership in Canadian industrial policy. And I think it's a mistake. And I don't know if it's because we forgot. How, I've heard it opined by ex, an, an expert that we kind of forgot how to do industrial policy at the federal level. We're not, we're, we're kind of relearning that. And you just don't see the, the, the uh, you know, we don't have a jigger shaw uh, in, in, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe we're just not talking about them and they're, they're kind of invisible. Uh, well, what's your take on that? So uh, Jigger Shaw also, I, I am so impressed by him. He is, he's creative, he's solutions oriented. He is an excellent communicator and he's basically the best decision that the US DOE could have made. So I've also been following his work closely. Um, I, yeah, I think you're right. A, kind of a, a charismatic public um, proactive personality like that is, is 
something that you see in kind of, well, I don't want to say that, but we don't have a quite a jigger straw uh, <laughs> in Canada. Be I, diplomatic. In a, be diplomatic, Joanna. That's fine. <laughs> I do. I do want to t- celebrate Minister Champagne. I think he single-handedly has been responsible, or or can you know a, a huge portion of Canada's success in landing a lot of these EV and battery projects can be attributed to him. And his, you know, uh, tireless efforts out there just marketing Canada and um, branding Canada. And so I, I think he has been an excellent ambassador for the industry. And I think most industry players would agree. We don't quite have an innovation uh, ambassador in the same way. And someone who comes from, you know, the finance and clean tech sector like like Jiggershaw, that some sort of a czar like that could be a great, uh, you know, next step for uh, federal or provincial governments. But I think also something that kind of plagues Canada is that whenever we do have clean tech companies or or any sort of tech companies, innovation companies that start to explode, they're so quickly snapped up by American companies, and we don't get to kind of tell the story ourselves, right? We we don't get to own that success and so then there's there's sort of less focus on it ballard was recently purchased by new flyer so ballard a bc-based clean tech company was was purchased by um a manitoba-based uh new flyer uh bus company which we celebrated as a great example of a large canadian company buying up an, uh, an emerging uh canadian clean tech leader so perhaps if we can sort of broker more deals like that uh, we'll have some innovation leaders that are more excited to uh, to prioritize that. Uh, fair enough. And um, uh, for those who, uh, again, are, are not Canadian, um, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne is the Minister of uh, Innovation, Science, and something, something, something. He's got a long title. But if you think of innovation and science, you've got it. And by all accounts, uh, somebody else we need to interview as well because he's, he's quite a f- uh, spark plug, I hear. And so... Well, look, Joanna, this has been uh, very, very interesting and exciting times uh, here in Canuckland as we, you know, the uh, it's been a mission of mine now for a few years, but it's going to, I'm going to accelerate that, is we need, Canadians need to pay more attention to the transformative changes that are happening at the global level. And China, we missed the significance of China. And now we're just, you know, thanks to BYD and 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 China's big lead in in solar uh, installations, we're kind of going, oh, oh, maybe we better pay attention, but not enough. And I think we need to make that part of our conversation because it's really important context for how Canada uh, shepherds the growth of its own clean energy technologies, particularly in transportation. So anyway, thank you very much for your insights. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks, Markham. Great to chat with you, too.